Good evening. Please open your Bibles to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. I want to begin with a question. If someone came up to you on the street and they said, what's your Savior like? What would you say? How would you describe Jesus? That's the question that is posed to to us and to the woman in this text. In Song of Solomon, if you will recall, we have poetry. We have lyrical song describing a relationship between two lovers. We have the woman, she's also called a Shulamite, or the bride, now wife. And we have the husband. And the husband, as we've seen, is pictured in various ways in this book as a shepherd, as a king, he's spoken of in priestly language, as a savior, as the beloved one. And last week, if you were here, you remember a startling picture. The woman wakes up and um, her husband is knocking. She doesn't get up. She can't be bothered. And so he leaves. And then she decides to get up, but when she opens the door, she can't find him. She searches all throughout the city looking for him, and she, she can't find him. The night watchmen of the city find her. They mistake her for a, a harlot, and they beat her. They bruise her. Again, this is poetry. It's not historical narrative. And tonight we'll pick up the story right after that scene. The woman is here having gone through a tough trial, and she's posed a question. Similar to the question I posed to you. What is your beloved like? Why is he so special? Let's pick up at verse 9 in chapter 5 of Song of Solomon. And see what the Lord has for us this evening. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you adjure us? She says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth? His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. This ends the reading of God's perfect word. Let's let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would remove the clutter from our mind, that you would help us to see in this text our great Savior pictured in this poetry as the bridegroom, and that in seeing him a little more clearly, it would help us to love him even more as he has loved his bride so perfectly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
My aim tonight is to walk through the woman's description of her king and make some comments and some applications along the way, but mainly I want us to see how she describes the king. How does she describe her beloved? Now, if you remember from previous sermons, Solomon is writing poetry, and he's using it to picture not merely earthly marriage, but greater realities beyond that. And I believe, as I hope to show you in this text, that this poetry about a marriage points to the relationship between the Lord and Israel. Israel is spoken of in the Bible as being wedded to Yahweh, the Lord. They are covenanted together, beginning with Mount Sinai and the covenant that God made through Moses with the nation of Israel, which was to be his bride. We've also noted in this poetry, in the marriage poetry, language that is reminiscent of the garden temple in Eden, where man walked with God in all purity and love, and language reminiscent also of Israel being in the promised land, worshiping God in the special place of him revealing his presence in the tabernacle and the temple. And those themes of garden and temple, tabernacle, they run through our text tonight, as I'll soon show us. Let's begin looking at the text with the the question posed to the woman in verse 9. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved? Twice they ask her, what is he like? Why is he so special? Some people think that there's a little bit of sarcasm or perhaps mocking in their tone. I'm not so sure of that. Either way, I think these women are serving as a literary device kind of setting up the stage for the next section of our text. What's your king like? What is your husband like? Now, it struck me as strange this week as I studied this text that we know Solomon wrote this book. There are people that think that this book is merely love poetry describing Solomon's own earthly marriage. It's merely a picture of his earthly marriage and nothing more. But if that's the case... If Solomon is simply writing this about himself, then this next section would seem exceedingly narcissistic to me. This next section is simply about the king. And if it's only about earthly Solomon, he had a very inflated view of himself. But if it is the case that Solomon, the wisest man to ever have lived up until this point, if he was using poetry to write about another king, a perfect king, a king greater than Solomon, then we have something to see here. And I've become increasingly convinced as I've walked through this book that that's exactly what Solomon is doing. He's writing about a husband, a shepherd, a king, a standard that not even Solomon himself can measure up to, and he knows it. That's the description of the king that comes in our text. We'll begin to see it's not even Solomon measures up. So what is your beloved like? Why is he so special? Let's look at verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. He's radiant. He's dazzling. The word is literally white. He's glowing. His splendor and his majesty is incomparable. Nobody else is like him. In fact, that's the thrust of the statement, distinguished among 10,000. If Solomon were writing today, he would say, my beloved is one in a million. Nobody's like him. Does such a description belong to earthly Solomon? 
Well, Jesus does speak of Solomon being arrayed in glory, but his glory didn't last, did it? Solomon was not perfectly radiant. In fact, by the end of his life, his, his heart was led astray. So the Holy Spirit riding through the pen of Solomon is pointing to some radiance that's greater than Solomon's. This radiance makes me think of Jesus in the moment of his transfiguration in Matthew 17. Remember, Jesus goes up the mountain and he meets with two figures, Moses and Elijah, and the text says, and he became transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. He was radiant. He was glowing. He was dazzling. The Lord pulled back the curtain and revealed a little bit of the divine glory of the sun manifested for Peter and John to see. Radiance, innate radiance, is an attribute of divinity. That's why Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Similar language is used of Jesus in John's vision in Revelation 1. He was dazzling, white, standing in glory. So the poetic king in our text is being described of in dazzling, glorious, bright, radiant language used of the Lord, used of the Lord revealing his presence in the Holy of Holies, later used of Jesus Christ himself. But the text doesn't merely say he was radiant, pointing to divinity. It also says he was ruddy. Ruddy is a word that has to do with red. He was full of life. His cheeks were rosy. He was handsome. Ruddy is the word used twice to describe David. 1 Samuel 16 and chapter 17. David was a ruddy man. And so we have in our text a Davidic son, born of a man, full of life. And also like David, if you will recall, he's praised in poetic song. You remember David was praised in song as well. 1 Samuel 18, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Same language here. This king is better than ten thousand. This son of David it's preeminent. He's the best. No one can compare. And we have in this one Davidic son the divine radiance and ruddy preeminence of the best of men. The glory of the Lord and the best that mankind could have to offer. This is why theologians have seen this passage as a reference pointing to the two natures of Christ. Jesus was both the radiance of the glory of God and his divinity while also being the best of men to ever live. Divinity and humanity in the same person. Solomon couldn't have lived up to that. He's pointing to someone greater than himself. He's pointing to Jesus. And if that's the case, what more does he say? Well, verse 11. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. So the language here is speaking to the royal nature of this Davidic son. He's a king. And he's not merely wearing a golden crown. His head is of the finest gold. Literally, the gold of all golds is what it says. 
We have a picture here similar to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 where there is a, a statue, a composite statue that represents all the worldly kingdoms. Solomon is here describing a king who's representing the kingdom and the power and the glory of the king. His head is gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. There's, there's, there's no gray here. There's no hint of decay. There's no decline or weakness. There's no senility setting in on this king and his reign. No, no diminishment of his power or ability. It's as if he's saying the king in this picture has no sign of the end of his reign. No sign of weakening. Nothing can stop him. His kingdom will have no end. Was that true of Solomon? No. Now, the text then changes its imagery. He goes from describing the beloved in terms of a royal king into language reminiscent of the promised land and of a garden. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk sitting beside a full pool. Now commentators are uh, split on exactly what eyes of a dove means. They all agree it's a good thing. Does it speak to the purity of this one or his gentleness? Does it speak of his innocence? Could be all those things. Is the dove, or we should notice though, the dove is resting beside peaceful streams of water, reminiscent of the security and blessing found in the promised land. He's sitting beside a full pool, or a pool fitly set, we might translate it. The thrust of it seems to be that there's nothing lacking from his appearance. His eyes are graceful, dove-like, innocent. John Gill says that his eyes are not fierce nor furious, but loving and lovely. They look down upon his people under all their trials and afflictions with sympathy and concern to deliver them out of them. He's not casting an angry gaze with sharp eyes. He looks with concern. The picture is similar to God hearing the cries of his people in Egypt and being moved by his own compassion towards them to rescue them out of their trial. That's the king. He's not frustrated and angry. You remember at the beginning of the chapter, the wife gave him the stiff arm. Now continuing the theme of promised land language, verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. So his cheeks here are like the sweetest-smelling spices they have, which are both precious and valuable, but have a pleasing aroma. The language here is very intimate. To smell someone's cheeks, or perhaps it's a reference to his beard, they must have been very close, faces very near. Likewise, his lips are lilies dripping with myrrh. Again, intimate language. Lips are what we use to show affection. His face is turned towards his beloved. And the sweetness of myrrh and the blessings that that, that represent are present. And the language here is bringing together themes of face and blessing, which are found throughout the Old Testament. If you think back to Numbers chapter 6 and the ironic blessing, may the Lord 
bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. Blessing is often pictured as the face of the Lord, his countenance being pointed at you, his gaze aimed at you, his inclination towards you for for your good. That's blessedness, that's flourishing, that's life. And the king has turned his gaze upon his beloved. It's as if in the text they have entered an intimate embrace, an embrace that has sweet-smelling aromas of spices and myrrh. It's a picture of, of what communion should be like. Does, does your communion with the Lord have a similar effect upon you? We should ask that of ourselves or or we could use the words of the psalmist. Have you tasted of the Lord and seen that he is good? I hope you have. His, his embrace, the, the joy of communion with him, that is life to a believer's soul. Nothing in this world can compare to it and nothing in this world can make up for its absence. But if we're honest, we, we don't always value such communion with the Lord. There are times where we, we let our souls languish. And we, we may go through the motions of religion. We may do the, the outward works, be like the nation of Israel, but our hearts are far from God. We go through the ritual, but we're, we're unmoved in our soul. We have calloused hearts. We need is a fresh sense of our communion with the Lord. We need a, a vital religion, as the older Puritans used to say. We say, Father, forgive me for not loving you and valuing you. Wash me of my sin. Make your face to shine upon me again. And give me your peace. And what is our peace? Jesus himself is our peace, Paul says in Romans. Because Jesus died for a cold-hearted, apathetic bride. He died for people that just go through the motions, running the machine. He bore the penalty for insincerity, for faithlessness. And then he woos his bride back by reminding us of his love. This is what, what Sean talked about this morning. He took away the punishment. He bore it for us. You, you know, his cheeks, the, the, the beard mentioned in this text, his beard was not sweet-smelling in mounds of spices. It was pulled out in pain as he was tortured. His cheeks were struck by the unjust authorities. His lips tasted not of blessedness and wine, but of sour wine and of sweat and blood on the cross. That's the price he paid for our redemption so that we could taste the joy of communion like sweet spices and myrrh to our lips. And so remember that king, that son of David, that husband dying for his bride so that the bride might be restored and forgiven. But let's keep going. Let's see more of this king's glory. Starting in verse 14, we see another shift in the imagery towards tabernacle, temple language. 
The statue-like description of the king and his rule begins to be described in language very closely tied to the temple, which was the place of special communion between God and his people. Verse 14, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His arms are rods of gold. It would be an interesting picture. We draw it out literally. It's not saying he's wearing some gold. He's got his bling and his rings and bracelets on. His arms are rods of gold. His arms, or perhaps his hands, they're the instrument of his action. They're the representation of his rule, of his reign, of his power. And the work of this king is gold that is precious. It's of what he does is of incalculable value. There's no defect, there's no weakness to this. And the rods that are set with jewels, as the ESV translates it, it's, it's literally set with beryl, B-E-R-Y-L, which is a precious gemstone found in the breastplate of a priest in the Old Testament, Exodus 28, 20. And so we have stones tied explicitly to the work of Old Covenant priests now in the arms of a king who has golden rods to do his bidding. So we have the union here of imagery for king and priest. Was King Solomon a priest? No. He was a king. But we have hints of priest-king in the Old Testament. There was a moment in David's life where he put on the ephod, the garment of the priest, and he brought, he led the procession that brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the nation. But David's priesthood didn't last. He died. And Solomon's rule had some priestly elements. If you look at his prayer at the dedication of the temple, for example. But he, too, faded into the dust of history. Now, there's another priest king, and this priest, his rule will last forever like gold. And the priestly work of this Davidic king is precious like jewels to a believer. That priest is Jesus Christ. He represents us. He mediates for us. He makes a way for us to commune with God again. He takes away our sin. And for the believer, he's both our priest and our king. And even more amazing is the sacrifice that this greater high priest would make. He doesn't slaughter bulls or goats. He lays himself on the altar. He was the spotless lamb given as a sacrifice in our place, free of any blemish or spot. And our text hints at that. Look what it says next. It says, his body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. Ivory, polished ivory. It was precious and costly. It was also the thing that they made Solomon's throne out of. An ivory throne. 1 Kings 10, 18. But this Davidic king, his rule, his throne is precious and spotlessly white like ivory. It wasn't true of the earthly Solomon. His rule didn't end well. And that earthly king Solomon wasn't 
also a priest offering a blemish-free sacrifice. It was, he was pointing to something greater, a priest king with a perfect rule and a blemish-free offering. Well, is this priest king going to be temporary too? Is he going to come and get our hopes up and then crash them down again like David did and like Solomon did? Is this a temporary arrangement? Verse 15, his legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His legs are alabaster, are marble, columns of marble set on bases of gold. Again, tabernacle and temple language. Marble was used in the construction of the temple. 1 Chronicles 29.2 And the word used for the bases of gold is the same word used 55 times in Exodus describing the construction of the tabernacle. And so this priest king, the Davidic son, is being pictured as having a rule and a work that is like the worship of God performed in the tabernacle and the temple, but unlike the tabernacle, his work is immovable. Like giant alabaster columns and marble supports holding up the, the, the temple, the work of this priest is unshakable. Further driving that point home, the text says his appearance is like Lebanon, choice as cedars. Lebanon was known for the quality of its huge cedar trees. Their size, their prominence, world-renowned. That's, that's why those cedars were used in the construction of Solomon's temple. Huge trees known for their strength. And that's what the bride is using here to describe the appearance of her beloved king. And so we have a Davidic son, a priest king, whose work and whose rule is described in terms of temple and tabernacle language, and whose rule and whose work is immovable, unbreakable, unshakable, as durable as an alabaster column. I think you can see where I'm probably going. All of this sets the stage for the New Testament where we have the fulfillment of the promised son of David. We have a radiant and a ruddy son, born, both human and divine, son of God and son of Solomon. And this priest king came and he made a sacrifice, which is once and for all and is as, as, as immovable as the cedars of Lebanon and the marble of the temple. And that sacrifice was himself a blemish-free lamb as white and precious as ivory. And like his grandfather Solomon, this Davidic son, Jesus, rules, and he rules because of that sacrifice. He's the king over all, and his throne was secured because of the spotless nature of his sacrifice. You see, his perfect life and his atoning death was received by God as an acceptable sacrifice, which is proven because he raised him from the dead. He earned for himself the right to reign over this kingdom, but his throne is not an ivory throne like Solomon. His throne is in the heavens, at the right hand of the Father, and he, his reign will have no end. He's defeated all of his foes on the cross, and one day he will finally judge the wicked and the damned with eternal justice and power from his rods of gold. His arms with his gold rods have no blemish in them, and his works are perfect even in judgment. 
And if that's the case, then I want you to hear that this promised son, this sacrifice, I want you to hear of his work and believe in him. That's what this king demands, that you're to be covered by his sacrifice and forgiven of your sin. And so trust in this Jesus. Don't be like Israel that hardened their hearts towards God. Or the Pharisees that thought that their good works and their religious effort was enough. No amount of temple sacrifice, no good deeds are enough. Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple is here. He is the mercy seat. He is the place where atonement and satisfaction allow sinful man to be brought back to a holy God. His sacrifice is the only way that we can have communion with God. The only way that we can come into his presence. So don't ignore the son. Trust in him. Lest your rejection of him earn yourself judgment and wrath. He will speak. He will judge. Psalm 2 says he will break the wicked nations with a rod of iron. Dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. His judgment is sure. And the rod of his wrath held in arms of gold will be perfect and complete. And so spare yourself of that fate. Kiss the sun, to use the language of Psalm 2. His lips are like lilies. Indeed, as verse 16 says in our text, his mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. His mouth is most sweet. It sounds like Psalm 19. The psalmist says the word of the Lord is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. See, what our Davidic king says in his word is sweetness to the ears of a believer. His priestly work of intercession brings life to our eyes. And that makes him altogether Lovely. That's, that's the close of the bride's description of the king's appearance. Altogether desirable. There's nothing lacking. There's, there's no room for improvement. What, what more could be better than this king? He'd be willing to sacrifice himself for his bride, for an unfaithful bride, for, for a sinful people. What earthly ruler would do that? Only the glorious sent one, the, the promised son of David, the radiant and the ruddy one. Only Jesus would do that. And because he can do that, the bride can close by saying words that only a believer can say. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. My beloved, my friend. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of the Son whose atoning sacrifice was sufficient to redeem a bride of unimaginable sinfulness. Lord, help us to remember that he joyfully, willingly endured the cross so that his bride may be brought back to him. His delight in her is now seen because he has made her to be spotless, given her his own righteousness. 
Father, use that to stir our hearts to love you and by, by loving you more, loving our neighbor as ourselves. I ask this in Jesus' name.